as Dave was praying and giving us the opportunity to right where we're at right now to confess our sins, to prepare our hearts, I was thinking about the words that I'm going to share with you this morning. And, and as we were singing and worshiping this morning, I had that sense of I feel the least qualified to preach this morning. That's how I felt, which is probably a good feeling because that just makes me cry out more to God and say, God, may your spirit speak this morning, not my words, because it is truth. And I understand that if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and you're sitting here this morning, the words that I'm going to say to you are going to offend you because it's truth. It's for God's people. And if you're a child of God and you're in here and you've confessed with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, the words that I'm going to share with you might be convicting and also might be encouraging. And I don't want to mess that up. So I prayed as we were praying, as we were worshiping, that God's Spirit would speak this morning. That as we open up God's truth, we hear God's words. So this morning I pray for open ears and open hearts to what God has to say. Amen? With that, open your Bibles, please. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll bring one to you. we got guys in the back. They'll bring you a Bible if you need. I can't say the same about coffee. You should have gotten yours already if you didn't. I want to thank Mindy and Steve for bringing coffee every week. We appreciate that. We really do. I don't know if you ever thought that, or maybe had this thought. I've had it. These are the words that come to mind. This should be an easy fix. This should be an easy fix. Has, has those words ever come to your mind? You're about ready to work on a project. It's like, oh, this, this should be an easy fix. Has that ever come to your mind? Yeah? It comes to my mind all the time. But then here's what happens. We only discover that when we get into the midst of things, it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. I'm not going to ask how many of you can relate to that. But that happens to me quite often. I was replacing a door in our house goes to the outside, and I thought, this should be an easy fix. Go pick up a new door. Take off the hinges, put it back on, pass it. I'm good to go, right? It's never that easy, by the way. I had a mess for about an hour and a half, maybe two. At that point in time, I took off my pastoral attitude. <laughs> had to pray for confession afterwards. Anyway, uh, it's never that easy. And then comes the kitchen sink. I've got to replace the faucet. I don't know if you've ever replaced a faucet in the kitchen before. It's not an easy fix. In my mind, this should be easy. And after I was told as I was picking out faucets that those were bathroom faucets, not kitchen faucets, I figured this was not going to be an easy fix. And that's why it sat on the dining room table. The parts did for about two weeks until I gained up the mustard and courage and said, okay, this is going to take a while, so I've got to make sure I have plenty of time to work on it. It happened. We took care of it. It's all good. I fixed it. But that was not as easy as I thought it was going to be. And I think about this. The same can be said when you want to discuss spiritual matters. This should be an easy topic. This should be an easy fix. But then when you open up God's Word and you discover what He says and you think this was going to be cut and dry, black and white, easy to resolve with maybe a waving of a verse or two from God's Word, you discover, you know what? There's more to it than this. You open up the subject to discussion, and you realize there's more than meets the eye. So as we've talked about in the last few weeks, we're going to deal with topics and issues that are controversial in today's culture. And we need a professional to walk us through each step of the way. So we invite God, the author and the perfecter of our faith, to guide us. And we seek direction from His Word. Now, in the Bible, if you want to open up to the New Testament, which is towards the back of the Bible, there's a book called 2 Timothy. So you get past the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You get past Acts and Romans and First and Second Corinthians. You go past a bunch of little small books. And you're going to get to 2 Timothy, the second book of Timothy, chapter 3. And I want to read from there because, again, foundationally, uh, the first five, ten minutes this morning may just be a recap of last week. So if you weren't here last week, this will help you. For those of you who were here last week, let it refresh and remind. Okay? 
2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, says this, But you must remain faithful to the things you've been taught. Paul's talking to Timothy regarding God's Word. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. Verse 15, you've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they've given you wisdom to receive the salvation that comes from trusting in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 16. All Scripture, let me hear you say all Scripture. All Scripture is inspired, it's breathed by God, is useful to teach us what is true and what makes us realize what's wrong in our lives. It straightens us out. It teaches us to do what is right. And it's God's way of preparing us in every way, fully equipped for every good thing that God wants us to do. You know, in the midst of arguments and, and, and false teachings and persuasive discussions that go on, this is just exactly what we need to hear today. We, we need to hear this because there's so much going on. What do I listen to? What is true? What, what do you think? What's your opinion? Well, what do you, would you write about it? What we need to do is stand firm on what we know is true. And Paul says to Timothy, all Scripture, not just certain sections of it, not the parts you like and the parts you don't like. No, all Scripture is true. It's God-breathed. It's inspired. It's useful for teaching and correcting, helping us to do the right thing. Truth comes from God's Word first. And this church, I pray, as you hear when you come here on Sunday mornings, is biblically grounded on God's Word. If we stray from it, we're in trouble. And I pray that every church, not just our church, is in God's Word so we know how to respond to today's challenges. You know, I'm, I'm challenging us today, as I do every week, stand firm in God's Word. Get into God's Word. Read it. Study. Pick up a study book if you need to to help you to study God's Word. Choose not to bow to false teaching. Instead, act in love, looking for opportunities to share God's love and His truth and His grace with others. The discipleship class or if you want to call it a Sunday school, that's fine. What a great opportunity to know more. The evangelism class coming up, what a great opportunity to know more. When you read the first four words of the Bible, that's where we're going to start. Last week we said it starts with truth. Well, let's start at the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God. Let's say that together. In the beginning, God. The first four words of the Bible start us off saying, hey, this is where we start with truth. God is the first subject mentioned in the Bible. It's one of the most profound statements ever made. In the beginning, God. Stop right there. We try to bring God down to our little world, and we try to examine God and make him fit into our box. We try to define him, and we can't. We can't do that because he is God. God does not conform to our desires. He does not conform to our definitions. He confronts us as the one who is in existence before anything ever else existed. Last week, we examined that, and I came up with some points. I sent out an email this week, and you got that, and I'll recap it very briefly. But it says this, God is self-existing. He cannot be explained or defined as other objects are. We can pick up a pen. We can say where this came from, who, who made it, who created it. We can't do that with God. God is self-sufficient. He has no origin. Self-sufficiency means that God has no needs. Therefore, He doesn't need us. He depends on no one. God is not a needy person. We are needy people. God does not then need or depend on worshipers. Oh, let me tell you something. I believe with all my heart that this morning on the throne, God and His angels were probably honored in our worship. But did he create us saying, oh, I need somebody to worship me, so I better create humans? Not necessarily. But does our worship honor him? Absolutely. Is it deserving? Definitely. God doesn't need helpers. He's entrusted us with the management of earth. And for those of us who call ourselves believers in Christ, he's commissioned us to go make disciples and teach, right? He's given us that as opportunity to serve. But does he need our help? Do you think he really needs our help to do all that? No. But he's given us that responsibility. 
God doesn't need defenders. We have opportunities to speak for God, especially to, dis to defend God when people dishonor His name. We can step right up and say, hey, don't talk about my Lord that way, or hey, this is what God's Word. We can stand up and defend, but does He really need us to defend Him, the Lord of all the universe? Does He really need humans to defend Him? No, but yet He creates us. God is eternal. He is, has always been, will always be. Psalms 90, verses 1 and 2. I read that last, last week. I'll read it again. Lord, through all the generations, you've been our home. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from beginning to end, you are God. Awesome verse. God stands alone. There's no one else. There's only God. God from the beginning and God into eternity. Try to grasp hold of that for a second. As believers in Christ, as believers in God, as believers in His Word, we stand firm on that truth. That is God, God alone, and there's so much more that we can't even have time to talk about today. But we believe in that. And to acknowledge this truth puts us into a subjective position. We now must, must bow in humbleness to an almighty God. We are not God. See, here's the problem. The root of all sin deepens when we put ourselves above God's word. When we choose to be God, when we choose to make godly decisions or decisions of which only God can make, that's when we get in trouble. And that's where we see a lot of issues in our culture. As we read in Genesis, we read in the beginning that God created. Okay, in the beginning, God, right? And then we said he created. What did he do? He created something out of nothing. And we said not one of us in this room, in this world, ever has been or ever will be qualified to do that. We know of no one that can take nothing and make something. It just doesn't happen. Why? Because only God can do that. And God did that in the very beginning. So God creates new from nothing and does it in an orderly fashion. Everything in creation is in order. Nothing is out of order. Fish were not created before water. It just didn't happen that way. Everything was created in order that made sense. It was not chaotic at all. God's greatest masterpiece, we said, though, came in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. So let's go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. Turn with me to Genesis, please. The very first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Again, sort of recapping what we talked about last week, just so we make sure we're on the same page here. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. says this, Then God said, Let us make people in our image to be like ourselves. They'll be masters over all life, the fish in the sea, birds in the sky, livestock, wild animals, and small animals. So God created people in his own image. Think about that for a second. God created us in his image. We are image bearers of God. God patterned them after himself. Male and female, he created them. Man was created superior to all creation. Man was created in God's image. And that's not said of any other object or animal. Created by God, man's responsible. God gave us responsibility for what we do in our life, particularly for how we carry out and mandate rules over creation. We're created by God with value to take care of things with value. And God created all these incredible things in the, in the garden. He proclaimed them as good. Look at the person next to you and he said, God said it was good. Go ahead and look at the person and tell them, God said it was good. Hmm. However, there's one thing that God said was not good. That's for man to be alone. That's not good. Not good. So what would be the right and proper and the natural partner for Adam? Well, you know, it's amazing. Again, God does everything in order. He creates trees and gardens and bushes and stuff and the animals. And he creates Adam and he has Adam name all the animals. And as every animal parades by and Adam's naming them, not one thing, not one animal is suitable for man. So you've got to put in mind, you know what? None of these are for you. So let me create from man, woman. And he created Eve. So God created what? Male and female. The 
proper mate, the complementary partner, the perfect fit. Now, we need to understand the Bible is very clear that nothing is by accident. That sexuality or gender is a result of the creative act of God. That was God's idea. Male and female, good, meaningful, just as other aspects of God's creation are good and meaningful. Men are not women. Women are not men. The distinction between man and woman is crystal clear from the very outset. As well as their roles in life and marriage, we find Scripture to help define that. However, we're now faced with, as I said last week, the word transgenderism, which leaves us all like, what is that? And how did that come about? Is that right or wrong? And we begin to ask questions and confusion arises, and we wonder, well, where do I stand on this issue? What do I think about it? How should the church respond to all this? And I'll tell you how we respond. We respond accordingly to God's Word. If I respond by my opinion, I will be faulted, and I will most likely lead people down the wrong road. So I come back to God's Word. That's why we started in the beginning God, and that God created, and that God created man and woman. When God created two distinct and complementary sexes or genders, However, one of the effects of the fall of sin is that some people experience gender confusion. They perceive their gender to differ psychologically than their gender biologically. And we have that thing called transgenderism now. And in the case of transgenderism, an individual's gender is biologically clear but psychologically unclear. And it's an issue not of physiology but of self-perception. And any understanding of gender as being self-defined, I'll define gender myself, okay? That's whether I'm a guy or a girl. When that happens, it is in sharp opposition to the created order and word of God. And we must understand that. So you say, how do I feel about it? It's in opposition to God's word. That's how I feel about it because it's true. That order and each individual's participation in in creation is valued and affirmed, and gender is an important component of human personhood, and they can't tamper with it without then suffering harm. As soon as we start deciding what should be gender and what's not gender, guess what happens? We go down a path of destruction and hurt and pain. How gender roles, I said last week, can be determined and expressed by culture to culture. What should men, how should they act like, how should women act like, who cooks, who cleans, okay, those are gender roles. Okay? That's culturally decided, right? But gender itself roots in creation, not culture. It's tragic that the fall has introduced biological anomalies like intersexuality into human experience. It's, it's tragic that some people are confused with their identity. That really is tragic. And we look longingly for when creation is liberated from all this. We look longingly for when God comes and redeems our bodies in this earth. We look forward to that, right? But in the meantime, what do we do as a church? How do we respond to this? How do we show compassion and love to those struggling with confusion? And, and how do we invite them to share in the gospel that we have? You know, we cannot condone and we cannot overlook the actions of those who seek to chemically or surgically alter their biological indicated gender. We can't overlook that. We must, listen, we must sympathize, though, with the confusion and inclines them to do so. As believers, guess what? We're called to what? Love our neighbors, right? And to show them love and compassion, we're called to affirm the worth of every body that was made in the image of God. We're called to invite them to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Yet we must also insist that individuals don't change what God created. Gender and sex are divine gifts. They're part of a finished creation that God pronounced very good. However puzzling and problematic human sexuality has become, because it very is much so, especially in our day, God did not intend it to be this way. This is not what God intended. But here we are. So how do we deal with that? I'll tell you right now, there's a lot, a ton of scripture here. And if you want, I can always forward this on to you. But understand this, sexuality is a divine blessing. 
God created human beings not only for spiritual intimacy with himself, but also for extraordinary, rich intimacy within marriage. You know, we read in Genesis 2.24 that this is why a man leaves his father and mother and he's united with wife and they become one flesh. That's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And the amazing thing is, Jesus quotes that same scripture in the New Testament. Paul quotes that same scripture in the New Testament, referencing back all the way to the very beginning not saying, hey, I've got a new way we're going to do this whole... No. What did, how did God start this? This is how it started. The creation account, which I've tried to share with you, lays a foundation for consistent and comprehensive theology of sexuality that's going to be developed throughout the whole scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation, human sexuality is a divine gift by which human beings created male, female, can experience within a marriage relationship. It's amazing. By the way, I probably should throw in here too. While the Bible consistently celebrates the gift of marriage, the Bible also celebrates the gift of celibacy. I need to make sure I say that. Both are divine blessings. But let me summarize in saying this, now that we're about halfway through, okay, then we'll kick into the second gear here, is this. God's eternal. He is self-existing. He is self-efficient, self-sufficient. He is eternal creator of all things new. So before we are ever, were ever close to existence, before our brains were ever put into creation, guess what? It was God. God was here before all of us, before all of this. He created us male, female, from nothing. Created with purpose, created with specific gender, created for man to be with woman and woman to be with man. This is foundational. This is the beginning. That's God's word. Not Rex's opinion. This is God's word. But now what we see is what? The truth has become twisted, right? This was a beautiful thing in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. But then everything gets twisted. Everything gets messed up. Everything gets crazy. Sin rears its ugly head by destroying and attacking all that God's created for goodness. Sin is in direct opposition to what we aim for as Christians. We are aiming for what? Godly lives, right? As Christians, we should strive to live in a way that honors God. No doubt about it. As we're striving to live in Christ, we reflect in our lives, as we live it out, fruitful, godly lives, disciplined lives. However, listen, please, listen, please, listen, please. Not everybody wants that. We know that according to God's word, we're going to try to live godly lives. But can I share this with you? Not everybody wants that. Maybe your coworker, maybe a family member, maybe even your spouse, maybe somebody that, that you are close to says, I don't want to hear what the Bible has to say about it. Then it's a mute point. Because if they don't want to hear truth, any truth you throw at them is just going to be trampled upon. Not everyone is willing to submit to God. And I think that's hard for us as Christians because we, we care so much about people. We have so many people we love, close relationships, like, man, I love you so much, would you just please accept this truth? And they're like, no. And you're like, then I guess I won't either because I love you and I, I value your opinion. You know what? I can value your opinion, but the thing is, that's not truth. As a person who's trying to strive to live a godly life, I must stand firm on truth, and I'm still going to love them, but their behavior I cannot Look at Romans 1. Let's turn to Romans. Here, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. It's the sixth book in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1. Paul is really excited here in writing to the Romans. He's so excited about his love for people. He's like, I'm praying for you. I've, I've, my heart's been thinking of you. And he's so excited. And he starts writing Romans chapter, you know, wrote the book of Romans. And um, as he's writing this letter, and he's sharing the good news. You know, I love it. He gets to verse 16. I'm so not ashamed of the gospel. And a lot of young people in this room, a lot of teens, maybe they have a favorite Christian rap artist or Christian singer, and they've got 116 and that label's out there, and it's all based off Romans 116 to not be ashamed. And, and it's exciting, right? I'm so not ashamed. But then it's like, okay, good news, good news, love, awesome. But then he goes, but wait a minute. That's bad news for you here. So he starts writing a little bit more. And you have to imagine that as he's writing, I'm, I'm a lefty, so he's, he's probably right now. Paul had to be a lefty. So as Paul's writing, his, his hand's probably cramping up, or maybe as he's dictating the letter to be written by somebody else, as maybe he was chained. 
as his letters were, as things were flowing, you have to imagine that things got a little tense. Let's look at verse 18, Romans chapter 1. So he's all excited, but then comes this. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who push the truth away from themselves. For the truth about God is known to them instinctively because God's put this knowledge in their hearts. See, from the time the world was created, which we've been talking about, okay? People have seen the earth, the sky, and all that God made. They can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature. So they have no excuse whatsoever for not knowing God. Remember that, please. Let me come back to that. Verse 21, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship Him as God or even give Him thanks. They began to think of foolish ideas of what God was like. The result was that their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they became utter fools instead. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-loving living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people or birds or animals or, or snakes. So Paul sums up mankind and how many of us approach an eternal, self-existing, self-sufficient creator God. We suppress the truth. Maybe not so much us, because I hope we're living those godly lives, right? But for those who are not living godly lives, those who do not want to have anything to do with God, this is what they're doing right here in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 24. This is how Paul describes it. He says what? They, they suppress the truth. You know what that means? They're holding on to it so tight, they don't want the truth to get out. Last week, um, we were, uh, went to a ball game, and, and we were sitting there watching the game, and some people behind us had a big dog, and, and um, the gentleman we were talking to finished talking. He started walking over that way. He didn't see the dog. The dog saw him. It was like a big German shepherd. It was, it was big. And, and that dog, I mean, it was, the lady had it. I mean, and she looked like she could handle this dog, but, I mean, that dog was like, and, I mean, the guy that we just got talked to, he probably had to go change his clothes because he, it scared me, and he thought he was going to lose an arm or a leg. And, I mean, he was like, you just sort of see him, and he didn't see, you know. That lady, she held on to that dog so tight. You could just see her. Like, she was like, it was like pulling, but she was holding it back. Okay, that's the picture I want you to see here of suppressing the truth. We're holding back the truth so much. The truth wants to get out. The truth wants to be known. But you know what? I'm going to suppress it. I'm not going to listen to the truth. God created male, female, whatever. I don't believe that. I think God created female, male, female, male. I don't know. I'm just going to make a mix there because that's what it is, right? That transgenderism thinking, okay? And I don't mean to make fun of it, but I mean, but when you take truth and suppress it, what do you start believing? Whatever else is out there. And God says, as Paul's writing here, man has decided to suppress the truth. Not going to listen to it. The result is what? Dark and confused thinking. This is what happens when we don't listen to truth. Things get confusing. It turns dark. That's scary. It says if a man's trying to get rid of God is basically what he's saying here. And, and guess what? That started back where? Back in the Garden of Eden. After Satan came in and entered in as a serpent. You know, it's sort of like we say this. We just want God to leave us alone. You know, if he could just stay out of my business, I'd be okay. I don't have to hear about these godly people and their godly decisions. And a lot of times that's why a lot of organizations and churches are kicked out of places because you know why? Because we bring light in, we bring salt in, we bring truth in, and people within there are like, I don't like this. Why? Because it convicts them. And all of a sudden, they are confronted with truth. I don't want to hear truth, so why don't you just get out of here? And they kick truth out. Isn't that what man wants? That's what Paul's saying here. Freedom from God, freedom from religion. It's like the father of the prodigal son. He releases the rebellious son. Go ahead. And the rebellious son takes everything he wants, leaves with all of his possessions, and runs away to a far-off country to do whatever he wants to do. God does the same with us. If we don't want the truth, he's like, go ahead. I love you, but I'm going to let you run. 
problem is we run from God. We don't find happiness. We find misery. And instead of freedom, we encounter bondage to sin. So what does God do with our desires? To do our own thing? What does God do with our desires to suppress the truth? What does God do to us who refuse to worship him and refuse to give thanks? Because that's what Paul said. They suppress the truth, they refuse to worship me, and they will not give me thanks. That's to God. So what does God do? Look at verse 24. So God let them go and do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. In some translations, you might, might say God abandoned them or God gave them up. It's a judicial abandonment of human race to the consequences of our rebellion is what it is. This isn't just like God letting go and, and it's nothing, okay? Like we're out in outer space. And it just sort of floats off. When God let us go and we chose rebellion, guess what we also get to choose? Consequences. Whatever rebellious act we choose, there is a consequence that follows. And God gives us up to that. Three times in this passage we see this phrase. So if I were to stand up here, and let's pretend it's, it's a plastic bottle, but what if this was a glass pitcher, okay? And I were to let go of it. Because we're not in space, because we have the laws of gravity here, it goes down. Now, if I were to, if this was glass, it would have probably shattered or cracked for sure. Now, if the lid was off and I drop it, it's going to also spill with whatever contents are inside all over. If the contents within it are of a bad substance, a color, for instance, like a coffee or a red Kool-Aid or something, okay, it's going to leave a stain as well. So when God said, I'm giving you over to your choice, you've chosen to abandon me, to suppress truth, to not worship me, to not give me thanks, I will let you go. And that's your choice. So man chooses to run away from God, and this is what happens. It's a downhill spiral. It is not like, hey, we get better. We get worse. And when we fall, we break, and we have pain. And a lot of times, whatever's inside spills out and stains wherever we touch. And the lives of an ungodly person don't just affect that person, but the people around them. Are you following me on this? When we run away from God, we think we drift, like I said, away in space, and that's not true. We ride into nowhere. Truth is, we run away from God, we're pulled down by the laws of moral gravity, and we typically crash our lives. So look in Romans 1 again. Paul shares this down, downward spiral, concentrating on sexual sins. And here, let me say this real, out loud to you all right here. I'm not sure why Paul centered on sexual sins alone. You know, he could have discussed any and all other kinds of sin. He really could have. But he focused on sexual sins, and maybe that's because they're so visible and because the damage in this area is so evident and obvious that Paul starts here. That may be why. But listen to what he says. So God abandoned them, verse 24, to go ahead and do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. Instead of believing what they knew was true about God, they deliberately chose to believe lies. So they worshiped the things that God made out of the Creator Himself, who's to be praised forever. Look at verse 26. That's why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having uh, normal sexual relationships with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. As a result, suffered within themselves the penalty they so richly deserved. And as you're reading through this, there are words that are just popping out. Shameful, vile, degrading, unnatural not normal. They're just all over the place. And you're sitting there going, oh, you know, years ago, we didn't talk about this in public, did we? How many times did I just use the S word this morning with the kids in here? Sorry, kids. But again, if we don't talk about it here, we already know you're hearing it in school, you're hearing it on TV, you're hearing it from friends. We already know that. So here in a, in a place where you're going to hear truth about it. Because God created for special within marriage. Beautiful thing. But these things were perverted. And these things were practiced. We knew people engaged in these behaviors, but we didn't talk about it. But today it's what? It's front page news. 
It's not just front page news. We talk about it as if it's picking an item off the menu at the restaurant. It's no big thing. Let's just talk about it. It's applauded for being brave and courageous, and we're shocked, and yet we become complacent as well. And Paul describes some of these sins as unnatural, shameful, vile, degrading. And remember, creation is what? Natural. What God created. And sin is perversion of natural. It's unnatural. Some sexual sins are just true sins for breaking God's moral law. That's the way it is. But you know what? Other sins are unnatural because the body's being used in an unnatural way. It's not meant to be this way, such as the sin of homosexuality. It's unnatural. Rex, you shouldn't say it. Why not? I'm just proclaiming God's truth. Um, if we're going to be honest with each other, let's be honest with what truth is. And this is what we're hearing this morning. Paul describes this, and, and it's at this point Paul says, listen, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Paul's telling us, guess what? There's a penalty for doing this. You want to choose to go away from God. I don't want to hear the truth. I don't want to worship God. So as you roll all away from Him, there's a penalty deserved. And it's not fun when your life crashes, is it? As I preach from God's Word, like I said, I, I've been praying that this is acceptable to your ears because it's God's Word. And as God's children, His Holy Spirit is within us. So we understand that we stand in agreement. However, I share this with some, and some people completely disagree, and that does not surprise me, and I'm going to tell you why. Because as you read on, look with me at verse 28. Verse 28 says this, when they refused to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their evil minds and let them do evil things that they should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, fighting, deception, malicious behavior, gossip. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. They're forever inventing, listen, they're forever inventing new ways of sinning. They're disobedient to their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises heartless, unforgiving, fully aware of God's death penalty for those who do these things, yet they go right ahead and do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. So when I sit here and say, I'm going to preach God's word, God's truth, and I understand that some people are going to say, and I hope that's not anybody in here, but as I'm outside and I'm sharing this truth with somebody, they're going to say, I don't believe it. I don't, I'm not going to care. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. That doesn't surprise me because I read here that they still go ahead and do these things anyway, sometimes they encourage others to do it too. God told me thousands of years ago when his scripture was written, not that long ago, sorry, that people are going to be that way. They don't want to hear? No, nope, not going to hear? Not going to hear? We know the results, and yet we do them anyway. Sort of so what is our attitude. Worse yet, Paul says we encourage others to do it. Let me say this. In a word, since the fall in the Garden of Eden, our sexuality is broken. It's just broken. The fall left no aspect to human nature or human experience uncorrupted. Human nature fell, and human sexuality fell within it as well. So it should come as no surprise that when we find sexual disorder in the world, God's original design for sex, that it thrived within the context of marriage between one man and one woman, has been thwarted in countless ways. Premarital sex, cohabitation, marriage, adultery, pornography, various forms of sexual abuse are predominant in today's culture. It's all over. And sadly, we witness these disorders even within the church, within Christian brothers and sisters. It's not a unique contemporary problem. It was a dilemma in the biblical world as well. That's why many biblical passages talk about it. It's like, well, the Bible doesn't, the Bible talks all about this, trust me. If I were to throw some scripture up on the screen, Leviticus 18, the Lord said to Moses, give the following instruction to the people of Israel. I, the Lord, your God, I'm your God. So he says this, don't act like people in Egypt who used to, you know, live that kind of way, okay? Or like the people in Canaan where I'm taking you. You must not imitate their way of life. You must obey all regulations. Be careful to obey my decrees from the Lord your God. If you obey my decrees and my regulations, my regulations, you'll find life through them. I am the Lord. And then the rest of Leviticus 18, all these sexual sins are listed. That's going way back, right? And then Jesus talks about it 
Remember the woman who committed adultery? She was messing around. Shouldn't have been messing around, right? And everybody wanted, hey, pick up a stone. Let's throw it at him. What did Jesus say? Hey, you without the first stone, or without sin, throw it. Not one person could pick up a stone and throw it because they all knew, I, yeah, I, I messed up too, right? But we all do that. We, today, we pick up stones and we find people that are different from us, that maybe they've sinned in a certain way that's predominantly out there in our culture, and we say, oh, look what they're doing, and we pick up our stones. As Christians, like, drop your stones. Paul talks about it in Galatians. He warns us. From almost the beginning of human story, God's gift of sexuality, which he intended for good, has been misused. It's broken. The most admired Old Testament heroes. You know, we look at the Old Testament, we find guys like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon. They practiced polygamy. Though God originally intended marriage for between one man and one woman, that was it. David himself was an adulterer. So biblical spirituality in both Old and New Testament manifestations, we look at and we say, man, it's been threatened and even destroyed. What God shows us is what? Sin is here. Now, I say all this because I feel like, man, Rex, thanks for slapping the bad news on us this morning, okay? Preach it like it is, right? But let me share this good news with you, okay? There is some good news here. Because we understand this is a deep and per, uh, pervasive problem in our culture. We understand that. But we need to understand this, that God's provided a redemptive remedy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? God created us for wholeness as human beings, including sexual wholeness. This wholeness, as tragically distorted as it is by sin, can be restored by God's grace. And all we look around and we say, that's, uh, that's sick or that's gross or that's it. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, sin is gross. I don't care what it is. Even if it's gossip. Even if it's, you know, lying about oh, it's just a little lie. It's, it's still sin. It's gross. But God's grace restores us. And our fallen sexuality can be redeemed in Christ as well. We can be redeemed from the penalty of sin because Jesus bore all of our sins on the cross. Did we not just sing... Jesus paid it what? Paid it all. Oh, he didn't pay some of it. Oh, no, no, no. Jesus doesn't forgive everybody. No, I'm sorry. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Christ died for those with same-sex attraction, with gender confusion, just as he died for those whose lives are sexually broken in other ways, just as people who are sinning in other ways, just as he died for me, who I sin. We are in Christ. Sin's penalty is canceled. That's the good news. Now, we can be redeemed by the power of sin. And God's moral demands are impossible to meet in our own strength. That's why we thank God. That's why we sing these songs, because only the power of God can break the power of sin. That's why we worship. That's why we're so thankful to God. With the divine aid of God's indwelling Holy Spirit, God's grace enables us who follow Jesus Christ to try to live moral purity and holy sexuality. This doesn't mean that grace necessarily eliminates our desires that are wrong. It does mean, for example, that God will eliminate a person's, I'm sorry, it, it does not mean, too, that God will eliminate a person's same-sex attraction or gender confusion. We know God's forbidden adultery, and yet the scriptures and Christian experience makes it clear that people still mess around with it. We still have those desires. Temptation to sin remains a characteristic feature of our Christian life. But while temptation may be inevitable, succumbing to, succumbing to temptation is not. God provides us freedom from the enslavement to sin. We're enabled to resist the power of sin, whether it's sexual or otherwise, as we walk in a spirit sustained by God's strength. That's the good news we need to hear this morning. Those in Christ will be ultimately, ultimately redeemed by the pre, from the presence of sin. Steve Jones, he's the president of um, Missionary Conference USA, said this. We, the church in America, have tried on the weapons of the executive branch, trying to elect a president who would uphold our values. There's nothing wrong with that, but it didn't work. We tried on the weapons of uh, legislative branch, working to elect and then lobby representatives so they would use their powers of legislation to protect biblical marriage. 
That too is good, but that didn't work. And we've tried on the weapons of judicial branch, fighting in court to get judges to enforce our Lord's definition of marriage. Again, the heart of that right is right, but it did not work. Steve Jones goes on to say this, we've tried on Saul's armor and it didn't fit. Now, what Steve Jones is referring to is the story of David and Goliath. And you remember 1 Samuel 17, David's going to go fight Goliath. Saul's like, why don't you put on my armor? So Saul or, gives him his armor. David tries to put on King Saul's armor. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work. He takes off the armor. He says, I can't fight with this armor. I'm going to take what God's given me to go fight the battle. And what Steve Jones is saying is, sometimes in America, we're trying to put on the wrong armor to battle sin in our lives. And it doesn't work. So this morning... I just want to give you this as we close this up. Here's the armor that we need to put on. Here's how we face these issues. And the first one was obvious as we pick up God's truth and understand God's truth and learn God's truth. That was obvious, okay? Here's the second one. It's called taking up the mantle of prayer. God does more through prayer than any of us ever will in our own strength that we could ever imagine. I'm so thankful for the emails that come out with the prayer requests and the prayers that Rhonda shares with us. And, Prayer will do more than anything else can ever be done on our own. Prayer is permission to access God's power to accomplish God's purposes on earth. So we pick up prayer. We pick up God's word. And it's time for us to start sharing our own testimonies as a weapon. Because God has done incredible, miraculous things through many of you. You've been redeemed from sin, and you need to share that with others. I got an incredible email from somebody in this church this week. I'm not going to share it. I'm going to let them share the story down the road. But it was cool because they decided to be obedient to God. And when they're obedient to God, amazing things happened. It's a cool testimony. But we've got to share those more. And what's the fourth thing we can do? Make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who what, Landon? Make disciples, right? And that's been Landon's call with the youth group. I want to make disciples who are going to make disciples who make disciples. And it's spilling out into the rest of our church. You know, what we want to do, see these wonderful, I, so much of me right now just wants to do like this. Okay, I really do. I'm withholding myself, okay? Here's my fear. I'm afraid, thinking back to my youth pastor days, that if I just whipped it out there, and that was cool, somebody's going to come up to me, I got a paper cut right there, and I got my bad. So because I don't want anybody getting upset with me, I'm going to ask all the kids to come up here right now. Quick, kids. All the younger kids. Sixth grade down. Sixth grade down. You're going to take this. Go give two to everybody. Two to everybody. Everybody's going to get two. Everybody's going to get two. Look at this. All right. Nice. Nice. Two to everybody. There we go. Everybody gets two. Oh. There you go. Oh, I ran out. No. Here. Go give those people. Go give one, two, three. Uh, you got an odd one there. Everybody's going to get two. Because we want you to know what's going on next week. And we want you not to only know going on, we want you to invite somebody to come on because we want to take truth into this world. We want to make sure we're making disciples and make disciples and make disciples. We want to share truth. This is one practical way we can live this out. Okay? So I want to put that in your hands this morning to make sure you had it. You can take it. You can deliver it. We have many, many more of these. We'll pass them out. Kids, thank you so much. Hopefully everybody got some. Worship team, would you please come forward? Church family, this, as I said, is a, is a, um, a delicate issue, but yet it's, when you talk about truth, it's sort of easy. You know, it's like, oh, this should be an easy sermon. It's not, because I, I know I've got to make sure I'm solid on God's word on all this, and we start from the beginning with Genesis, work our way through who God is, and it sort of defines everything. And this week we got to the point where we understand that sin's twisted up everything. It's because of sin and our choices to fall away and run away from God. It's where we're at. You know, next week I'm going to talk about the Supreme Court um, law that was passed. I'm going to share about how that affected our church and other churches. And I'm going to share with you what our forefathers thought about this and what God thought about it, okay? And we're going to have come out of here saying, okay, so how do we respond in that? Well, you'll find out it's not too different from what we've been talking about is how we respond in truth and love and grace. But again, as a church, we must talk about this. It's all around us, and we need to be biblically strong in how we stand. So would you please stand with me as we pray?
Heavenly Father, you're an awesome God. And Lord, I just pray that today as we, again, just sort of feel like, I don't feel like anything was said. I feel like we're still scratching the surface. But God, I pray that your words were loud. And I pray that mine was quiet. Lord, I, I pray that we understand the truth that you are God Almighty, creator, self-existing, self-sufficient, Lord of all, eternal, created male, female for one another, created beautiful things. And you said all was good, but then sin entered the world and twisted it, and we decided to go our own way. We decided to choose our own things, and so you let us go. And the consequences have been harsh. And the result of our choices have been painful. And we see a world that's struggling to find truth. We've got the truth, God. It's in you. And we don't run around carrying it like, look at us. We got the truth. We walk around hopefully sympathizing with those who are hurting, including ourselves, giving truth so that they can find life in you. Thank you, God, for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on that cross to pay the price in full for the sins that we have committed, you've paid for. Instead of dying and going to hell, we can have eternal life with you because we've placed our faith in you, because we've confessed our sins. And you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all that unrighteousness. Thank you, God, for redeeming us. But God has redeemed believers, as followers of Christ, we must stand on truth, not in a very proud and, and, and arrogant way, but in a way that we sympathize with others because we care about people, because we love others. We bring the truth in love. We pray for those that have ran away from you, that they'll run back to you. And God, in our own lives, we confess our sins to you. Lord, thank you for this day. Help us to worship you in this song that we sing. In thy name we pray. Amen.